want to talk to you today about <clears throat> a subject that I think is the least popular in church. It's money and giving. <clears throat> Lots of people bristle when they even hear that. They think, oh, that's so unspiritual. So why focus on that subject today? Not because your giving, <clears throat> our giving as a congregation isn't strong, it is. Not because Dale asked me to do this, he didn't. Um, I love to preach about money, and this sermon series is about discipleship. And friends, money is often where reality happens. What you do with your money says a tremendous amount about what you prioritize and what you value most. Jesus said it in the call to worship, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So your checkbook, friends, is a profound theological document. And I hope it shows giving, generous giving to this church and many charities. But you know the world in which we live. Um, it doesn't support those values. Now, giving can be viewed from two different perspectives. We could talk about the need of the church or the charity to receive. And you hear lots of those appeals. And that's not what this is today. And, that, and they're legitimate. You know, um, you have a need, broadcast it to your your supporters. But the other reason to give beyond the need of the institution, the church, or the charity to receive is the need of the giver to give. And that is the focus of Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Jesus was saying, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, that the way we use our money, including our giving, reveals our deepest commitments. Do you realize that Jesus talked far more about money and possessions than even about prayer? And he talked a lot about prayer. He gave us a model prayer. There are a number of parables about prayer. Jesus engaged in prayer a lot, sometimes all night. But there's far more from the mouth of Jesus. There's more ink given the, by the evangelists to the subject of money and possessions from the mouth of Jesus than prayer by far. And why? It's simple. Because of the potential power of possessions to possess us. To become an idol that we worship. And we see that among our friends and neighbors all the time. In today's passage, instead of wanting more and coveting what others possess, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about wealth and advises contentment with what we already have, which goes totally against what you read in the media, newspaper, TV, advertising, etc., as if you need to buy that latest product to have a really happy life, or you needed the latest automobile, the latest fashion to be really happy and content in life. And that attitude has even infected the church. In some quarters, it has given rise to a perversion of the Christian message called the prosperity gospel. You hear this on many uh, TV worship programs. Not all, but many. It's a theology that teaches God's will is for every Christian to prosper financially. And let me just tell you right now, that is not the will of God. Because if it were, Jesus would have addressed it. He never teaches anything like that. That's just the fact, friends. And, and here's the motive for giving according to the prosperity gospel. You give because God then is going to shower you in return, giving you back in return many times more what you gave. So as Gloria Copeland put it, give $10 and get 1000 Give Give 1000 and get 100000 Wow, that's a deal. So the motive for giving, friends, becomes our gain, our personal gain. 
Well, in the sentence just prior to the text that uh, Jack's going to read for us in a minute, Paul warned against believing that godliness is a means of financial gain. So he torpedoed the prosperity gospel in one sentence. Now let's see by contrast what Paul did advise his young colleague Timothy about wealth and giving. At the time Timothy was providing leadership to the church in Ephesus, Paul is on his way to Macedonia, though he hopes to visit Ephesus soon. So here are his words of guidance, friends, not only to Timothy, but through the Spirit to each of us. The Scripture is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, and more, 17 to 19, reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Of course, of course there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment, for we brought nothing into this world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have found food and clothing, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. The Word of God. So again, Paul attacks our culture when he says we should be content with what we have, and he makes the comment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. A man who had worked all his life and saved his money, he was really kind of miserly with his money, Just before he died, he said to his wife, Honey, when I die, I want you to take all my money and put it in the casket with me. I want to take my money to the afterlife. So he made his wife promise with all her heart that when he died, she would put all his money into the casket with him. Well, he died. Before the funeral, he was stretched out in the casket. His wife was sitting there dressed in black along with her best friend. Following the funeral, just before the undertaker got ready to close the casket, his wife said, wait a minute. So she, she got out and uh, took this little metal box with her and put it in the casket. And then the undertakers locked the casket and rolled it away to the hearse. So her friend said, girl, you weren't really foolish enough to put all that money in there with your husband, were you? The loyal wife replied, listen. I'm a Christian. I can't go back on my word. I promised George I was going to put that money into the casket with him. The friend asked incredulously, you you mean to tell me you actually put that money with him in the casket? I sure did, she said. I got it all together, put it in my account, wrote him a check. If he can cash it, he can spend it.
Like Jesus, Paul suggests that rather than being a blessing from God, wealth may also be a potential danger. He writes in verse 9, those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin. Some years back, James Patterson and Peter Kim, researchers, wrote The Day America Told the Truth, surveying American attitudes and values. One of the most interesting revelations is that when asked, if you could change one thing about your life, 64%, almost two in three who took the survey, these, these are Americans, remember, two in three responded, I'd want to be rich. That was the number one answer. The desire to be a better person, for example, didn't even make the top 15. So the question is, does wealth correlate with happiness? If we all had more money, would we be happier? Studies by the University of Illinois psychologist Ed Diener shows that extra income brings with it some negative effects. Lifestyles become more complex, relationships weaken, financial record keeping becomes more complicated, fear of theft and loss heightens. Researchers found that the more income produced greater happiness for low-income people. That is true. But it leveled off after basic needs were met with incomes well below six figures. At that point, greater income did not lead to greater happiness. That's what the research shows. Which reminds me of the story of the judge who said to the defendant, I note that in addition to stealing money, you took watches, rings, and other fine jewelry as well. Yes, Your Honor, replied the defendant, I was taught that money alone doesn't bring happiness. In verse 10, Paul writes, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. Overvaluing money is hazardous spiritually to followers of Jesus. In fact, in a Sermon on the Mount, Jesus personified money as a false god when he taught you cannot serve God and wealth. When Paul writes that pursuing the almighty dollar has plunged people into ruin, it is as if he's picturing some who have drowned in a sea of greed. Paul said some have wandered away from the faith because of the corrosive effects of seeking wealth. And evidence of those negative effects, and this is true, friends, sociologically, that as one's income goes up, the percentage you typically give to the church and other charities goes down. This is a well-established fact. Here's an old study, uh, but way back in 1990, American households with incomes of less than 20,000, that's really in the poverty area, gave still a 5.5% of their income to charity. Households with incomes over $100,000 in 1990 gave 2.9%. As your income goes up, the temptation is to give less. And most people do. This is a fact. In verses 17 to 19, Paul gives three specific instructions to Christians who in this present age are rich. So I was thinking about that this week. And discovered there are 3,143 counties in the entire United States. And when you rank them according to per capita income, per person income, where do you think Sonoma County ranks? 
It's 190 seconds putting you, us, whatever. I live in Marin, sorry. That's even worse. Uh, <laughs> it puts all residents of Sonoma in the top 7% of counties across the nation in terms of income. So you're, no, you're in more than the top 10%. You're in the top 7 Okay, you're saying to yourself, okay, okay, others around me in this pew, yeah, they're all wealthy, but not me, right? We're all saying that. So I wondered about myself. So uh, a friend, Dale and I have had, um, who now is deceased, unfortunately, our friend Rich, turned me on some years ago to a wonderful website. I encourage you all to go on it. It's called globalrichlist.com, www, globalrichlist, all clammed together, globalrichlist.com. And if you enter your income there, they will compare you to everybody else on the planet. Pretty interesting, huh? So in 2017, the last year I worked full-time and collected a salary and plus got some, began getting some social security income, um, those sources of my income for that year totaled $98,128. So I entered that number on the Global Rich List website. Now it's old. I mean, that's, that's a couple of years ago. There's been inflation. I discovered I was the 5,158,469th richest person on the planet. <laughs> Which means, by income, friends, I am in the top nine one-hundredths of 1% of people in income. That means... I'm guessing many of our families are in the top 1% globally. Globally. We are rich. We are rich. So, what does Paul advise the wealthy? He says three things. First, don't be haughty or arrogant. Don't summarize or evaluate your life depending on what you own on your assets. Don't do it. Don't be arrogant. Second, he tells wealthy Christians not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You all remember 2008, the stock market crash in fall to, 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 to winter that year. Six-month period, the Dow was at 14,000, went to seven. And many people bought property during those, that period, and they found themselves underwater. They couldn't afford their mortgages. They had owed more on the mortgage than the house was then worth. I don't care what the nature of your investment is. It's unlikely to be secure. So don't look there for your security. Look instead to God in Christ. Third and most important, Paul commands wealthy Christians to be generous, to be ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. So for Paul and Jesus both, charitable giving is the way to a secure future. What Jesus calls an unfailing treasure in heaven. So, how do we battle the, the potentially corrosive effects of wealth? By giving it away. By sharing it with others. By being open-handed rather than closed-fisted. And in addition to our church, there are lots of other charities as well that are worthy of your support. Especially those who serve low-income people here and abroad. As you know, the biblical guide for Tithing, the benchmark is 10% of one's income. And if you haven't reached that, I, I hope it's something you're working toward. And for some, God has 
richly blessed us, including Lisa and me now, even in retirement, so that we can go beyond a tithe. I'm serious, and many of you can go way beyond a tithe as well. As we seek to follow Jesus, Paul challenges us to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. Let us pray. Generous God, you warn us about the seductive power of money, its capacity to possess us and become a false god. Free us from its destructive power. Help us to rely on your grace and love in Christ rather than what we own for our own sense of security. And give us generous hearts so we may gladly and freely share the financial resources you have given us to further your kingdom and care for the poor. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your best gift to us. Amen. Baby. 
sweet.